0: Hi there. I just wanted to say at the outset of this sermon that there was a little bit of an issue where the audio cut out, and so there's a hole in the sermon. So I've tried to patch things up so um, you can understand where I was going. Um, So it only lasts a couple minutes, so if you hang in there, it'll get back to the original audio. Hope you enjoy.
1: Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against, uh, against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared this This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are, are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. They spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophecy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter, is, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him. And you were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he, but he denied it before all of them. I, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he wept bitterly.
0: Would you die for a lie? I guess a few people would. You can imagine a parent falsely confessing to a murder that their son or daughter committed to protect them. A sort of love that's become twisted and put at odds with justice. But most people wouldn't do that. If a murder has been reported, you don't see a line at the police station of people hoping to convince the law that they did it when they had nothing to do with it at all. You want to live. And when you die, you want to keep your good name and not go down as a murderer. So how about this then? Would you die for the truth? Maybe a few would. You see, the choice here is will you lie or will you die? Because we lie when we deny the truth that we know. Of course, you probably want to know what you're being asked to lie about. After all, does it really matter to say that potatoes grow in trees and not in the ground? Doesn't seem like it matters all that much. You might not think so. But you see, lies have a way of growing in a habitat friendly to them. You get a society built on lies by making these seemingly small compromises. Literal death doesn't even need to be threatened. The living like their good name, too, and hate their neighbor's disapproval. The lies erode formerly firm realities until we're suddenly asking, "Who is a human being? What is a marriage? What is a man? What is a woman? And before long, which humans have lives worth living? Our lies find a way to kill us in the end. Anyone who dies for the truth believes that there is something greater than death. If there was nothing that was greater than death, to die for the truth would just be foolish. So when we look at a passage like this, a passage in Matthew 26, verses 57 through 75, we see two men who are asked to tell the truth in the face of death. One does, and one doesn't. One has faith, and the other has little faith. So we start by looking at the first man, Jesus. Now you recall in just the immediately preceding verses that Jesus has been arrested. Judas led a whole contingent, possibly 600 soldiers, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew Jesus and the disciples were going to be there. And he betrayed Jesus with a a kiss. They arrested Jesus and the disciples scattered. And so now you come here to these verses and we're led to the scene of Jesus' trial before the Jewish religious leaders, the Jewish elders. What's interesting about Matthew's account here is he seems to kind of collapse things, to condense things. Because as we look at the other gospel accounts, we catch other details as well. And this is why it's important for us to remember that the gospels are intended to be complementary to each other. They fill out details that the others might not include. Kind of like eyewitness testimony that you might have in a case. You don't want just one witness. You want several witnesses. That's what we have with the Gospels. So in Matthew's account, it says they take Jesus to Caiaphas. In John, in John's Gospel, he mentions that they actually stop... First, at Annas's house before they get to Caiaphas's house. Now you're like, who's Annas? Annas is Caiaphas's father in law. And Annas had been a high priest himself. So he was a real kind of one of the higher ups, even though he wasn't a high priest himself. So in John 18, 12 through 13, and verse 24, it says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander. And the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Matthew mentions that Peter is is following along, seeing what's going to happen to Jesus. And in fact, Peter's not alone. Peter and the disciple John are following Jesus And we hear later in the Gospel of John, in verses 15 and 16 of John 18, it says, Simon Peter and another disciple, whenever John refers to a disciple anonymously, he's referring to himself, and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple, referring to himself, was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So this is how we get some of the first-hand testimony of what's going on there, since John was in the room. But Peter had to wait outside at the door the other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So you've got the two disciples there, and the way that Peter kind of makes his way a little bit closer is because John's there to kind of advocate on his behalf because he has some connections. Um, So we have Jesus standing before the high priest Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin. We don't know if it was the entire Sanhedrin, you didn't need all of them there to perform a trial, um, but they they have enough there to do it. And it says Matthew says that they begin seeking evidence, and this is kind of interesting because you think, okay, they want Jesus dead, so why don't they just, you know, hire a hitman or something and just. You know, while Jesus is walking in the dark garden, suddenly he gets hit by a rock and, you know, or you know, stabbed or something, and that's it. But they don't do that because they want to—they want to keep everything above board. They want to maintain their own delusions of being righteous and just. And so they feel compelled. We've got to make the case. We want him dead, but we've—we've got to make the case here. And so they're seeking evidence and in order to have evidence that you can actually use to develop a charge, you need at least two witnesses. And this wasn't just something that they conjured up on themselves, by themselves, this is something that comes from the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 1915, it says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So not just for you know, capital offenses. But it says any, any crime. You need at least a couple witnesses. It can't just be one person saying, "Oh yeah, he did that." Now, as we see this scene playing out, you know, Jesus is here. A bunch of these leaders. They're trying to find somebody. Okay, what can we, what we, what can we get together to bring charges against this guy? You kind of hear the echo of the voice of the psalmist in Psalm 27:12. Or he says, do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Like, Jesus is living out the cry of the psalmist, where it's like all my enemies are around me. Like this is it. All of Jesus' enemies are around him. They have him right where they want him. And he's completely vulnerable. Eventually they find two people that seem to have similar testimonies with each other. They say that Jesus has threatened to destroy the temple. And they actually have some grounds for this accusation, because Jesus did say something along these lines. We hear it in the Gospel of John, in John 2.19. Um, this is the occasion when Jesus first goes to the temple and cleanses the temple. It seems like there's a couple of occasions when he went and did that and turned over the tables. Um, So in the beginning of John's gospel, and he tells the people there, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And so that's what we hear them say here in Matthew in verse 61. They said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now what's interesting is you go to the gospel of Mark and he says... There, Mark, he says, yet even their testimony did not agree. It's like these guys were saying similar things, but it still didn't perfectly coincide with each other. And, of course, they were misunderstanding what Jesus was actually saying because he wasn't referring to the physical temple itself, even though he was correct in, that, in prophesying that the temple would be destroyed because it does get destroyed in 70 A.D., But in saying that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days, he was referring to himself, the resurrection of his body. And when Jesus rises from the dead, he makes it possible so that we can be joined to his body and so that collectively we constitute the new temple of God. The temple of God is no longer a piece of stone marble architecture. It is you. It is the church worldwide. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But, the charge was good enough for the high priest to try to use it as as grounds for putting Jesus to death. And so, in verse 62, we hear the high priest say to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And Jesus' initial response here is quite interesting. It's just silence. He won't say anything. And this is intentional. Because in not giving an answer, and just kind of taking these accusations, what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the prophecy that was given in Isaiah 53.7, where it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He did not open his mouth. Now, again, remember, this is like prophecy given like 500 years previously. And Jesus is fulfilling that. And if it was just that one thing that Jesus is fulfilling, you'd be like, okay, he could contrive that. But there's lots of different things that Jesus fulfills. And the probability of him being able to fulfill those things, especially when it's things that are outside of his control, is impossible. It's statistically impossible. So Jesus initially responds with silence. And so the high priest doubles down. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So the high priest here is saying, Go on the record, once and for all. Are you or are you not the Messiah? And this is this is this whole question has been kind of thematic for. Matthew's Gospel. We see at the very beginning in the first chapter when Matthew gives his genealogy. He says, "And there, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So right from the beginning, Matthew's saying Jesus is the Messiah. And then later on, you remember that critical question that Jesus asked his disciples. He's like, "Who do people say that I am?" And they pipe up and say, "Oh, maybe Elijah, maybe this or that." And then he's like, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter answers, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." This is the critical question: Who is Jesus, and is he is he the Messiah? This is the question that was on the disciples' minds. It's on the question that. All the Jewish people are asking. Now, if you step back a little bit, this follow-up question seems a little bit odd based on the charges that have been laid against Jesus. Why does Caiaphas ask if he's the Messiah after hearing that he claimed that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it? The two don't seem to naturally follow from one from another. You would think, like, you know, if they had dynamite Jesus, have you been, like, collecting dynamite to blow up the temple? <laughs> you know, or, like, things like that. Why, did, why does he go to this claim about the Messiah? Well, the reason is, is because it was prophesied in the book of Zechariah that the Messiah would rebuild the temple. We see this in Zechariah 6, 12 to 13. It says, tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says, Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. What this passage does is it helps us understand why Caiaphas is asking him whether or not he's the messiah. It's because it's anticipated that the messiah would rebuild the temple. So having understood that, um, he's posed this question to Jesus, and, and Jesus does here give a response. He's no longer silent. Uh, he says, you have said so. Um, kind of an unusual response. Uh, he's basically saying yes, but it's a qualified sort of yes, and um, at least one commentator suggests it's because Jesus doesn't want to affirm perhaps their misunderstanding of what it means when he's claiming to be the Messiah. Um, Their understanding might be that he's intending to overthrow the Roman government and start an armed rebellion. And we know Jesus uh, is not intending to do that. He just scolded Peter for uh, cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant's ear. Um, So and we also get a sense, too, from Luke twenty-two sixty-seven, 67, where uh, Luke records Jesus' initial response as being, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. Um, so all that to say, the Sanhedrin doesn't have a clear understanding of really who the Messiah is, but Jesus is go- gonna, going to go along here and go on record and say, yes, I am the Messiah. Um, and he follows that up um By saying, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, Now, what Jesus says here is drawn from the Old Testament. And that's where he gains its significance. Um, The first part, um, when it talks about him sitting at the right hand of, of the Lord... Um, that's taken from Psalm 110, uh, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now what's interesting about that is David is talking about someone who's his Lord. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, and David's king, who would be, uh, higher than David other than God himself. And yet it says, the Lord says to my Lord. And Later on, we see that Jesus says that this is referring to him. It's referring to him as the Messiah. Um, And we look at at Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where it says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What's striking about this passage is that you have this one who is the son of man and yet he receives everything which properly belongs to God. He receives authority, he receives worship, submission from all people. Um, the sort of things that if any other king require those things, we call them an antichrist, You know, someone that's trying to be God. Um, and so Jesus is saying, This refers to myself, and uh, we're going to find this fulfilled when Jesus is raised from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. He's going to the Father. He's coming on the clouds and he sits down at his right hand to be both king and priest, as, as Zechariah was talking about. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's referring to this passage. So you have that Old Testament backdrop. And then this is brought together by Jesus' own testimony in the Gospels. We look at Matthew 22, verses 42 through 45. And here Jesus is referring to this passage in Psalms 110. He says in verse 45, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So he's basically saying, David's talking about me. David is saying that I'm his Lord. Then you we you'll recall in Matthew 24, 30, when Jesus is teaching his disciples about what's to come. He says, Then will appear the sign of man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember that that goes takes you right back to Daniel 7, with power and great glory. And we see in the Gospel of Mark as well. And this is after Jesus died, he's He's raised from the dead, and now he's ascending to heaven. It says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to the disciples, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. So in hearing all of this, we understand that Jesus is claiming to be divine, that he is, in fact, God incarnate. Now... You know, if we ask you know, what kind of understanding of the Trinity did, did the Sanhedrin have at this point, probably not a very good understanding. They didn't understand what, because they disagree with the notion that God is three in persons and one in being. They believe that God is just one in being. And so they're probably having a real tough time making sense of what Jesus is claiming here. But whatever he's claiming, whether he's claiming to be God in the flesh or proximate to God, they understand it to be blasphemous. And this is why they tear their clothes. And this is a classic response in the ancient world. We see Paul and Silas do this in Lystra in Acts 14, when they go and they heal a man, and then everyone's like, "You are these gods." And they start like parading, and they want to sacrifice to them. And Paul and Silas are so upset that they think they're these false gods that they rip their clothes open. These, these high priests, these elders, have the same response. They tear their clothes. Because they understand that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Or at the very least, it's blasphemous that he could call himself the Son of God, given the condition that he's in. They could view it as that. Either way, is that he's claiming to be God and or, how dare you claim to be the Son of God? Look at you. We've dragged you in here. You're nothing. How could you disrespect God in that kind of way by making such ridiculous claims? And so they're like, well, do we need to hear anything else? This sure seems good enough. Look at what this guy's saying. And so in verse 66, they say he is worthy of death. And we're like, wow, if someone, <laughs> it's worthy of death if you blaspheme against God? Well, they, they have their case. Because in Leviticus 24.16, it says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Now, just as a little aside here, you probably see that passage and you're like, wow, like that's pretty harsh. Like, are we expected to do that today? No. Um, because that command was given in a specific place at a specific time. It was given to ancient Israel, not modern Israel, it was given to ancient Israel, when God was claiming to be God, the, the king of his people at that time. And he says, this is going to be a state led by God. And he's going to expect that they would be perfectly righteous, perfectly faithful, perfectly loyal. And the point of all this is actually to demonstrate that they can't do that that they're going to fail. And it's tough to know how how faithful they were even in, in following through on these kind of judgments. But all that to say, that's in the past. Because now we're in a new age. Something radically changes when Jesus comes. We turn a page. We go from the old covenant to the new covenant. And the church does not judge by the sword. We talked about that last week. The church does not judge by the sword. That's given to the state. And yet, it should still be said there is a day of judgment where you will either enter into eternal life or you will be destroyed for any and all of all of the sins. In our minds, we think, well, maybe someone's worth worthy of that if they you know, commit murder or something. But The truth is is that we are worthy of death if we blaspheme God. We are worthy of death if we rebel against God and say, I don't want you to be God. I want to be my own God. Don't diminish that. We so often diminish sin and make, oh, that's not that big of a deal. It's just a small thing. No, it's a big thing. And we'll have to answer for that one day. It's just the case now that we human beings are not the judges to carry out that sentence. Things have changed now that Christ has come. We have not been given that delegation like the ancient Israelites were given that delegated authority at that time. So they start slapping and mocking Jesus, mocking him for making these claims about the Messiah. They blindfold him and say, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So it's kind of a, a mock trial sort of thing. Well, if you're really a Messiah, you'd be able to tell us who hit you. And again, this is, this is fulfilling both prophecy and we also see Jesus here fulfilling his own teaching. Jesus doesn't talk. He lives up to the standards that he expects. In Isaiah 56, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you'll remember Jesus teaches us this. He says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus has said again and again that all of this was going to happen according to God's plan. And he remains resolute in the face of it all. He isn't backing down. He isn't folding. He's taking it all. In sharp contrast, We now swivel over to Peter to see how he's faring with just the slightest bit of pressure. So so Peter's hanging out in the courtyard. Some of the other accountants mention there's a fire going. going. He's keeping his hands nice and toasty warm. And um, the gospel gospel accounts indicate that there's a number of people hanging around. It's not as though Peter was just there by himself or there's just a couple of people. There's a number of people Milling around, and it's interesting because across the accounts we have Peter interacting with various people, and so it's almost this scene where you have Peter there, and these people are making comments to each other, and so the various gospel authors record, you know, the challenge being presented to Peter from different people. So, if you're if you ever study them and you're like, why is it this person versus that person? It's just it's because it's a group, and that's why we have those details recorded like that. And as we look at these accounts, we we do see that there are some stakes involved here. I mean, not only is Peter outside the area where they're deciding they're going to kill Jesus, but some of the people that Peter is interacting with are directly connected with those judging Jesus. In Mark 14, 66-72, it says that one of the servant girls who challenge Peter, saying, aren't you with Jesus, aren't you with one of his disciples? It says that while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. So this is like one of the high priest's staff members here. <laughs> so Peter's thinking, like, if she figures out I'm a disciple, she can go run to him, whisper, him, whisper in his ear, and they say, okay, drag this guy in there too. And then we also see in John 18.26, that one of the people that challenges Peter, it says that it was one of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So it's like, you know, he's probably pretty nervous because we heard last week he cut off a guy's ear trying to defend Jesus. He's like, I don't want this guy to figure out I'm the guy uh, who did that. Um, But it's difficult for Peter to hide. Because the thing is, is he has an accent. He's from Galilee. And it's an interesting detail here. It's one of those things that if this story was just concocted, no one would probably think to mention accents. But this is just a testimony to the authenticity of the Count. Because we know that accents come to play in our interactions. And you know it's, fake to, it's, it's hard to fake an accent. Like if someone from the South came up here and tried to fake a Boston accent, Be pretty funny, be like, "No, I'm not from the south." I'm like, "Oh yeah, sure. You know, I'm from Boston. No, you're not." (laughs) I'd say, "Wicked," you know, "Park the car," you know, things like that. Like, you're not, you're not fooling anybody. You can almost imagine Peter, like, "Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know what a Judean accent sounds like," but trying to throw that on, like, "No, I'm not from Galilee," Um, but he's not convincing anybody. And it's interesting. He becomes so vehement in denying Christ he begins calling down curses. And one of the commentators I was reading was suggesting he was actually kind of calling down curses on Christ. Matthew doesn't go so far as to say that explicitly. But it's interesting because you see Jesus being charged with blasphemy. And in fact, what Peter is approaching here is blasphemy by denying Christ by denigrating him, by saying, oh, I don't know that guy. He's nothing. You'll recall that Jesus told him that he'd do this in verses 34 and 35. He said that before the cock crows, that Peter would deny him three times. But at the time, Peter was adamant. He said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And so when Peter hears the cock crow, it's a cue to him. He's like, oh shoot, he was right. And, and Luke makes this moment even more intense based on the details that he provides. In Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, he says, the Lord turned and looked straight
1: at Peter. follow you to the end. No way I'm going to deny you. And then
0: Jesus turns and looks at you, even as you're denying him. You can almost, you know, if if this was portrayed cinematically, you know, as a movie, you could imagine this being played out where Peter has a flashback to that moment when he's on the Sea of Galilee and he steps out to go to Jesus. And he starts sinking. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, You of little faith, why did you doubt as he's reaching out to him? And that's what we see going on here again. It's that moment in which Peter's of little faith. He's doubting. He doesn't understand what's going on. And so he falters and he denies Christ. And so, as I think any of us would if we were in his shoes, verse 57, it says that he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, after that, you think, well, that's that. Peter's done. There's no coming back from that. But of course, that's not the case. This is not the end for Peter. And it's interesting, Matthew doesn't record Peter's restoration. It's just kind of assumed. In the Gospel of John, we're told the moment when Peter is kind of reconciled with Christ and he's restored. In John 21, 15, they're along the Sea of Galilee. This is after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And he asks this three times over so that Peter's eventually, Lord, don't you know that I love you? Uh, he's, you know that I love you. He's, he's just desperate. And Jesus welcomes him back. I think this is a comfort and a reminder to us that only God knows when someone is out for the count. Even when he knew that Peter would deny him, Jesus still knew that he wouldn't lose Peter. Even while he knew that, he was going to lose Judas. Well, not really lose Judas, because he never really had Judas. Judas was kind of like a mole in the group of the disciples. We hear Jesus talking along these lines in John 17 when he's praying for his disciples right before all this happens. In John 17, through 12, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, referring to his disciples. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Talking about Judas here. You and I, all of us, we fall at times over the course of our life. But anyone who truly belongs to Christ will never be lost. If you belong to Christ, no one can take you out of his hand. It's a comfort knowing that the prayer that Jesus gives here in John 17 is a prayer for us. It's not just for the 12. Jesus goes on to say this explicitly. It's for those who come after as well. Jesus prays for us. I've, I've loved this quote from Robert Murray McShane of how this should invigorate us, really knowing this. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. That's the truth. Is Christ prays for you. He wants you to stand firm in the midst of the trials, the temptations, everything that you're facing. All of us have stories in which, you know, we've approached probably Peter's denial or just falling short. We also have those stories in which, even after a long season of that, God has brought us back out of the pit. And yet we do know that there are people that have the appearance of religion and never come back. And the reason for that isn't because they belong to Christ and Christ lost them. It's because they never belonged to him. We hear Jesus say this in Matthew 7, 23, where someone said, you know, didn't I prophesy your name, do all these things? And he he says at the end, I'm going to say, I never knew you. I've shared this verse a a couple of times, but I think what we see playing out here with Peter and, and his eventual restoration is what Paul talks about. In 2 Timothy 2, 11-13, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Don't you just love the, the tension there is just so compelling. We're called to endure. We're called not to disown him. And yet, right at the very end there, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is what we see going on here with Peter and Jesus. Peter is faithless, but Jesus is faithful. Because of Christ's faithfulness, Peter can be restored. Because of Christ's faithfulness, you can be restored, however you've fallen. It's not our job to sort out who will make a comeback and who will not. It's our job to offer the grace that Peter receives when he comes back to Jesus. That's the grace that all of us need. These verses demonstrate our need for Jesus all the more. Peter was zealous, but he was unfaithful. He came up short despite all of his big talk. Jesus is the only one who is the real deal. He's the only one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly faithful. He's the only one who can sit at the right hand of the Father. The only one who can intercede on the behalf of a bunch of traitors. Jesus doesn't just offer us grace, though. He also offers us an example. This is why the writer in Hebrews tells us this. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, because Jesus has gone before us, we can find the strength to stand if we look to him. It's possible for us to not lose heart, to stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter himself would later do this when he ended up being crucified, as Christian tradition records. Over a hundred years later, we see the Bishop Polycarp who is the disciple of the Apostle John, do just this in a Roman arena at the age of 86. Here is his account here. This is just a small selection of it. You have the Roman proconsul speaking. He says, the proconsul urged him harder, take the oath and I'll let you go. Curse Christ. 86 years I have served him. And he never did me any wrong, said Polycarp. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When the proconsul kept insisting, swear by the divine power of Caesar, Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the divine power of Caesar, as you say, and if you pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the Christian message, arrange a meeting and give me a hearing. I love Polycarp's little spunk there at the end. Christians down through the same ages have taken this same stand, resolved to declare, I am a Christian. To say, unlike Peter, yes, I am with Jesus, and he is the Messiah. He is King, the God-man worthy of the world's worship. I will not curse him. But will you be different than Peter? This is a challenging question. Do you disassociate yourself from Jesus in your social circles? You see, we can be just like Peter, even when the stakes are far, far lower. You can make your faith in Jesus just some small thing. You can try to hide the accent in your voice. And maybe your relationship with Jesus will be invisible to those around you. But for what benefit? What fills you with so much fear? You worry so much about their gaze. But don't you know that the eyes of Christ are upon you? His face is turned to you. He wants you to look at him. Not so you'll curl up in a ball and and cry, but so that you too will have the strength to stand, to be fearless, to be faithful, to run the race until the very end. For as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let's pray that we will not be moved and that we will stand firm with Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we have twofold reasons to be thankful this morning. We're thankful for Christ's faithfulness for two reasons, Father. Because by His faithfulness, we can be forgiven for our faithlessness, Father. And Father, our prayer this morning is that you would restore us if we've fallen. And that you would help us not to feel as though we're lost, as though we're beyond being redeemed and restored. We're sure Peter felt, Father. As we've seen that he is restored, Father, we pray that you'd give us that hope when we stumble and fall. And that we would communicate that hope to others as well. That they might come to Christ to be forgiven, to be restored. And Father, we also are thankful that in Christ we have an example that because of His faithfulness and in his, his perseverance, we can follow in His footsteps, knowing that we will share in His victory. Help us to be. Faithful to the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit, such that we'll confess Christ wherever we go and in whatever ways you call us to, Father, both in word and deed. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there. Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.